Hey everybody, welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, the founder of the Macro Compass, and as always, every week with me, Andreas Steno, founder of Steno Research and uh, head of the canteen and everything else at this little shop. <laughs> uh, we need to have a laugh about that since we call ourselves CEOs every week. Um, never mind, Alf. Um, we are recording uh, on Friday, the 14th of April, hot on the heels of JP Morgan delivering a positive surprise in their quarterly earnings report. And I think it kind of emphasizes the mood or the spirit uh, I see in financial markets right now that all of a sudden the crisis doesn't seem as imminent as it did just a few weeks ago. So why don't we start with the discussion on when to actually expect the ramifications of the liquidity crisis that we were at least partially through uh, during March to actually hit and kick in in the real economy. So what what's your take on when, how, and if we will actually see this credit issue evolving in the economy? Credit flows lead economic growth by anything between six and 12 months. So that means that if you start having a more serious, severe credit crunch now, you will only see the gradual deterioration in the economy minimum in six months from today. Yeah. Of course, you'll see some degrading before that, but my point is it's not like a light switch. It's not like the credit crunch happens today, we are in a recession today. There are obvious lags in the credit flow process. So the first question is, will the liquidity stress we have seen, which is now completely fading away due to the good policy of the Federal Reserve by ensuring the value of the collateral, the treasuries in that case, being repo repoable at 100 cents through the bank term funding program for cash, the liquidity stress is subsidizing very fast. The use of the discount window, the BTFP, the issuance of the FHLB, the other facility yep. that banks were using to get to get cash is also coming down rapidly. Liquidity stress is subsidizing fast. So the first question is, will that short, very short time-oriented liquidity stress turn into credit stress in the first place? And second, if it does, it still takes minimum six months to show some signs of deterioration in economic activity. That's my take. Yeah. So... A few observations from my side. Um, if you look at historically comparable scenarios with a very rapid use of emergency lending from the Federal Reserve, um, you also get a subsequent move in the direction of tighter lending standards on the back of it. That has happened every single time we've seen a major spike in emergency lending. No matter whether the emergency lending fades away relatively fast. It usually does, I mean, um, for good reasons. But my main takeaway of this major spike in emergency lending through March is that it will lead to conservative decisions taken by credit departments in banks. First of all, since this is an eye-opener for many bank treasuries that deposits especially from corporates, are not as safe as they were anticipated to be or as stable as they were anticipated to be, I think that should probably limit risk appetite 
from credit departments just as the as a consequence. Uh, even if there is a liquidity backstop in, in place now. Uh, it's not like you want to use those liquidity backstops as a bank, right? Even though they are firmly in place. Uh, so that's that's takeaway number one. Emergency lending leads to tighter credit standards. So ultimately, we should expect that. Uh, the second takeaway is that the first glimpse of an outright contraction in bank credit uh, that we saw in the last two weeks of... March um, was admittedly mostly technical, I'd say. Uh, we need to remember that the FDIC took over the loan books of Signature and uh, SVB. What I struggle a bit with is um, why the first citizens takeover of the SVB was not recorded in March data, but I think it will be recorded in April data. So bank loans will be transferred back to the uh, bank balance sheets from the FDIC. What I'm trying to say here is that you should not expect emergency lending to automatically pass through to a, a very sharp and sudden contraction in credit. It will take a quarter or two at the at the very minimum. Uh, but if, if you look at various, I, I've taken a look at various um, indications, surveys, survey-based hints of future credit standards uh, and if you take those at face value and allow them to lead actual credit creation by a couple of quarters, you still reach the conclusion that there will be a credit contraction in the second half of the year and a rather severe one. And that will still be my base case, but just in a while from now. So you have this time inconsistency problem in macro, Andreas, where we track leading indicators or we do our best to find them and study them and they lead economic activity and market performance by generally several quarters. So as an event happens, which skews some of these leading indicators on the way down, for instance, or up, people expect an immediate market reaction. But there are there is a time inconsistency between that happening and that being digested and translated into the data that people really track, earnings, defaults, and all of that which could go along with the credit contraction. Interestingly, though, the trend was negative in credit creation already before mm. this banking crisis. So both looking at the pay rate of change of government deficits or bank lending in real terms or credit creation in general in real terms in the five largest economies, maybe except China, mm. which we have talked about a couple of times, it wasn't looking particularly positive as a rate of change already before that. Now, this event, I agree, on the margin, it is likely to exacerbate the problem. But in order to find this jump risk in the economy, it might take a few months. In the meantime, markets are celebrating. Have a look at JP Morgan earnings report. And banks are up, I think, 3% today as we speak. Not only banks, but anything that smells like butter down risk assets for the last three to four months is actually reversing and performing really well, being it Bitcoin, banks, emerging market stocks, a Brazilian real, whatever Poland, you want. Poland, 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 Poland. Poland? You want to beat your chest on Poland? Okay, <laughs> sure. Okay, let's do that. Uh, we, we'll brag about that later in the show. Yeah. But um, the market is behaving as if the worst is past, mm. definitely behind us, and actually as if we are going to get no major recessionary episodes over the next three to four months. So let me take a step back and ask you about the first earnings release, which is JP Morgan. 
And what do you make of the earnings season and what do you make of this market? Let's call it euphoria that we have seen over the last few weeks. So, I mean, let's first of all remind ourselves that it, it is a quarterly earnings report from the first quarter. And it was not like we had a banking crisis throughout. <laughs> I think that's important to bear in mind. But we've had a look at um, how various banks cope with an inverted yield curve and with a tight monetary policy. And it is tough to find a bank which is better equipped to deal with an inverted yield curve and tighter monetary policy than JP Morgan. Uh, they are almost mechanically on the receiving end of inflows of deposits mm-hmm. in a situation uh, like the current. Um, we've also seen how uh, Jamie Dimon has um, uh, helped out uh, redepositing uh, money to, uh, to First Republic Bank, for example. I mean, it, it is a sign of strength from JP Morgan that they're able to do so uh, amidst a, a, a deposit crisis. Uh, so my point here is that if you're a large systemic bank with a very healthy balance sheet, with a um, very transparent balance sheet, stress-tested balance sheet, uh, with a hedged bond book, everything is transparent around JP Morgan. It's probably the bank with the least drawdown on the bond uh, book uh, in, in relative terms in the US as a percent of the balance sheet size. Then you will automatically be good off in a situation like this um, relative to, for example, small smaller regional banks. So I'm actually not too surprised that JP Morgan is, is faring well. We've um, pushed the idea that you should be long large cap banks relative to, to small cap banks uh, throughout March. And I, th- I still firmly believe in that trade um, as a consequence of the, I'd, I'd say the advantages of being a systemic bank right now, because those advantages are large in the current scenario. So when it comes to JP Morgan, at the peak of the crisis, on the macro compass, I used JP Morgan to actually show that if you're a large bank that does prudent risk management, all that hype was not really going to hit you at all. Actually, JP Morgan has something even more interesting, which is they publish the interest rate sensitivity of their entire balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Not only their bond book, but everything. Assets, liabilities, everything is stressed for higher interest rates, flatter yield curves, and what have you. And back then, basically they told us that in 2022, with the Federal Reserve hiking rates by 400 plus basis points and the curve flattening, which is generally negative for the capital of a bank, JP Morgan had lost about 10 billion in capital out of a 275 billion capital base, roughly so. So we're talking 4% of the entire capital of the bank, nothing to be honest, like a very small hit. So they were very well prepared, much better regulated, and much more prudent when it comes to the risk management. And obviously, uh, this was common knowledge, but during the peak of the hysteria and crisis, it seemed like all banks go down. Luckily, I think you and I have done some level-headed analysis that that wasn't the case um, coming from a liquidity stress. But now, the thing I find interesting about markets that I want to talk about with you is volatility has disappeared. The S&P 500 is trading in its narrowest range since basically, I think, the summer of 2021. We have having realized volatility in all asset classes, but particularly in the stock market being extremely low. We're having people having fun selling volatility, the VIX hitting lows. Also, out of the money, three months, six months, put 
volatility is very depressed. So people are not bidding up for insurance premium here, Andreas. They're pretty laid back when it comes to downside risks. Yep. And when you have this lower implied and realized volatility, it tends to be almost mechanical that people are sucked in in the market because, hey, nothing bad is happening, mate. We don't have any banking crisis. We don't have any major default. Uh, the world isn't falling apart tomorrow. Volatility is low. So people get sucked in back into the market. Yeah. The dollar is also weakening. So I'm going to leave you there with these two considerations and uh, please elaborate. So I was it three or four weeks ago we had a discussion um, on the yield on dollar cash. And I even think we labeled one of our episodes, you're paid to wait in the current scenario. But with very, very low realized volatility, it certainly doesn't feel that way, right? <laughs> um, it can be very expensive to be sidelined in, in, in such a uh, scenario, even though from an earnings yield perspective and what have you, um, it looks relatively decently paid from a risk-reward perspective to just wait. Um, but of course, uh, if you are a benchmark-following uh, long-only manager, uh, it's it's relatively expensive to have a portion of your portfolio parked in cash when S&P starts rallying, for example. So my point is that realized volatility is a predictor of human behavior to a certain extent, subsequent human behavior. And that is um, a very, very good observation. I think it's part of the reason why we see money being retransferred really into risk assets just as a consequence of nothing happening. Um, and... I mean, we we typically talk about um, whether conditions are there from a risk reward perspective to sideline oneself from risk assets, and I think think the conditions are better now than they were a month ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, to to take the view that risk asset will not risk assets will not perform from here, uh, I still have my eyes glued on say, the first couple of weeks of May, should we get that debt ceiling deal in place? Liquidity will be withdrawn on the back of it. Um, the dollar could start re-strengthening in such a scenario, in my view. It's part of the reason why the dollar is so weak now. Then I would be surprised to see risk assets rallying from there over summer. Um, so to me, and I'm saying this, still being heavily invested in high beta stuff, we are running on fumes. I think it's, uh, again, a problem of time horizons. So we have come up with uh, being long Poland, for example, which is a very high beta emerging market, Euro proxy stock index, right? So, But that's rather a play on the fact that things would calm down, that all this insurance premium that was spent in the market during the hype of the crisis would be questionable a few weeks later when nothing happened. Like, why would you spend so much premium in insurance trades and leave so much money on the table by not having a, a, a positive risk asset posture if nothing bad is happening? And that's exactly what we see today. Unwinding of this risk premium trade, bond volatility comes down, equity market volatility comes down, people get sucked back in risk assets. But then you look a bit further. So let's say three, six months ahead. And credit creation was already slowing. It's likely to slow further. Earnings are likely to contract a bit further as we progress into the late stages of the economic slowdown. 
the labor market, Andreas, is also showing the first signs, I think, of more evident slowdown. Cyclical industries within the non-farm payrolls, financials, construction, um, trade, uh, transportation, all the cyclical industries on a pace of change, on a rate of change basis are hiring a bit less. So the momentum of hiring in these industries has definitely slowed down now. And most of the positive contribution comes from healthcare, government, education, and leisure and hospitality, which is still lagging basically and trying to catch up with the, the reopening really and restuffing all the way up yep. uh, after the pandemic. So the guts of the labor market, in other words, the internals are telling us that things are indeed weakening. I personally still expect some serious weakening into summer and the liquidity story you've highlighted is really important mm. because all these technical liquidity supporting factors we have seen in the first quarter will probably reverse. For sure, I would say after June, it seems to be very, very likely that that happens. Finally, so, this might happen at the point where people feel very relaxed about risks, where we have squeezed out all the ball from the equity market, where downside risk will be really cheap to buy. And I think we might get uh, an opportunity there to buy cheap protection against the second leg of a bear market, which is unemployment rate goes up, earnings go down, a credit crunch, and everything we're discussing. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I could add in, in that regards is that uh, even though a lot of people have highlighted that uh, the positioning in S&P 500 from uh, speculative accounts in future space is extremely bearish, um, I don't think it's a pure reflection of actual positioning. Uh, and we need to remember that long-only asset managers, they will only sell in size if clients withdraw money from their funds. And that typically happens in an un unemployment spike, right? Uh, so you can actually get a sell-off even with professionals being bearish ahead of it um, if it is driven by actual uh, mainstream uh, withdrawing of liquidity, right? One source of volatility over the last few quarters has been the Federal Reserve. Yeah. <laughs> and then we need to talk about the European Central Bank because we'll be probably in one of these funny periods which we had only twice, 2008 and 2011, where the European Central Bank might still hike when the Federal Reserve has stopped hiking and even considering potential cuts. Yeah. So we might have again these periods, but let's talk about them later and let's focus on the Fed for a second. So I'm taking bets. Yeah. What is the Fed going to do in May and most importantly, what it does after that? No hike in May, pause, and cutting cycle commencing very early in half two. Would be my wow. So you, so you are more dovish than the forwards priced in yes. uh, the software or the euro but, dollar market. But I, I, I think we had this discussion a few weeks back as well. I mean, from a risk-reward perspective, this is a base case analysis, right? From a risk-reward perspective, it's not necessarily a story that is worth chasing right now. Um, since it is, I mean, it, it is mostly reflected in the curve, right? That uh, that view um, outside of the curve still leaning towards a hike in May. But other than that, I mean, it's probably more likely that um, it will take a bit longer for the cutting cycle to commence uh, compared to my base case if you compare the probabilities of me being wrong in either direction. Yeah. So I think the Fed is 
one and done in May. So the Fed hikes again by 25 basis points. Close call. I think they do hike 25 basis points. Fed funds will be effectively above 5%. And you'll have at that point, Andreas, into June, core inflation on a three months and a six months annualized basis, maybe trending three and a half, four-ish percent. Core inflation on a three month, six months annualized basis. What Powell is looking at, basically. The housing market inflation should help you, I think, because it's the lagged effect of negotiated rents, which have um, started to you know, um, cool down in the beginning of the year. They get reflected in housing inflation, which is 40% of the core basket, by the way. Mm. They should get reflected there between May and June. So you start having some cooler housing inflation. Core services is a function of wages, which are not accelerating on the way up anymore. So that should be relatively flattish. And you sh I think you should have core inflation slowly trending sub 4%, which means that real Fed funds will be over one percentage point positive, about 100, 125 basis point positive on a trending basis. Historically, this has been enough to slow down the economy and lower inflation. In most cases, real Fed funds above equilibrium rates have caused some damage somewhere. Mm. And the problem, people tell me, Alf, but 100 basis point the real Fed funds, is that good enough to slow down inflation sustainably? Because in the past, during Volcker's era, for instance, we had real Fed funds of 300 basis points, 400 basis points positive. But guys, these were the 80s. In the 80s, equilibrium interest rates were higher. So to slow down the economy, which was organically stronger with better demographics, better productivity, less debt, you needed higher real rates than 100 basis point positive. Today, 100, 150 basis point positive real rates should be more than enough to actually cause some damage. And I think the Fed agrees, Andres, and I think the Fed agrees on that. And I think this is why they will pause after May, because they are in the stance they want. And from a risk management perspective, there is no reason to go further. This is what I would say. So I've had the discussion with quite a few clients this week uh, on how to assess whether we will enter a clear credit contraction in a couple of quarters from now. And... Uh, some of these discussions also centered around how the Fed will view this question. And they, of course, also, also referred to that question in the meeting minutes uh, this week. Um, I mean, they clearly refer to lending standards as, quote-unquote, kind of a help for them in passing through high interest rates. Um, so, I mean, it is you can almost say that they can claim victory now that the credit contraction is likely to happen because that that is essentially what they wanted a few quarters ago, uh, a clear tightening impulse in lending uh, since lending is of such importance for a hyper-financialized economy as ours. And my point here is that if you look at, um, for example, the Dallas Fed survey, I think one of the newer but more timely surveys on, on uh, expected credit volumes from uh, participating banks in the survey, you already see signs of the SVB stress spilling over to their decision-making. Uh, and since it's Dallas Fed survey, I would argue that it is probably also watched by the uh, members of the committee. Um, so that could be one early gauge of 
credit standards and, and actual credit volumes of, of a few months down the road. Uh, and um, other than that, um, it is hard not to look at what we uh, received uh, as um, the message from small and medium-sized companies this week. The NFIB survey is one of my favorite surveys mm -hmm. um, since it is a survey among like the true corporate America, the small and medium-sized companies with um, a relatively large wage component in their cost base. And first of all, they tell you they're not hiking prices anymore. Mm -hmm. They tell you that this is the worst environment since the 80s to expand. So they're not going to hire. Um, and thirdly, they also tell you that credit has gotten a lot more yeah. difficult to get held off just over the course of the last month or two. Um, so this is a telling survey, if you ask me. Uh, not necessarily one they watch too closely within the Fed, but I think with the signs that they've received in their own survey from Dallas Fed, I'm tempted to say that they considered the job done here. Yes. Almost, at least. So we are discussing whether they do 25 basis points or not in May, and I think they do, and you think they don't. But ultimately, the overarching conclusion is that the Fed is very likely to judge that they are tight enough, that the job is done, mm. and that inflation, core inflation, will be trending down. Oil is rallying. So that's a pushback I get very often. It's like, dude, have you seen oil prices? I mean, we are over 82 bucks again in uh, WTI dollar prices. It's going to get reflected in the next CPI prints, is it? Yes, it is. You should also know that in 2008, oil rallied, as we were clearly going into a recession. Commodity markets are very interesting animals, sometimes driven by their own very short-term supply-demand dynamics. And look, if the Fed judges that they are tight enough for the overall economy, it's not going to be because oil prices rally that the Fed is going to change their stance, I believe. So from a risk management perspective, I think they are going to probably pause. Yep. And if they do, what does this mean? It means that the uncertainty priced in the bond market has to be priced away a bit, Andreas. I mean, if they're not going to hike, but also the hard off for cuts, according to them at least, it's pretty high at this stage. Mm -hmm. Well, why would you pay up for a lot of short-dated volatility in bonds, right? I mean, where, where are they going to go? They're rather going to try and stay there for a couple of months. And I've discussed why a lower bond market volatility is actually positive for risk assets because it mechanically stabilizes the safe part of your portfolio and it therefore allows you to take more risks elsewhere. For instance, in the stock market. I debate whether buying cyclicals in front of what I think will be labor market disinflationary recession makes a lot of sense but short term markets might actually focus on that volatility squeeze on the way down and technically try to rally i wouldn't discard the s&p trading 4250 4300 i think it's term. a very likely scenario um one thing i'd like to add to that is that um i have a few clients within the energy space and one of the things that uh, I find almost puzzling, but also very interesting, is that when they trade the futures curve in commodity space, um, they simply don't look, more or less don't look at expectations for future demand and supply. Almost, I say almost here, meaning that the, 
the shape of the commodity curve in futures terms is not necessarily a reflection of price expectations down the road, since it is rather a um, reflection of how cheap or expensive it should be to bid storage into today. Um, so if there is a complete scarcity today, it will spill over through the curve, uh, which is obviously not what you're seeing in an, in a yield curve, which is much more based on on a formation of of um, future expectations. So that's just a reflection of why oil can rally despite potential expectations among the same traders that demand could be lower in six months. Okay, Andreas, now I need to ask you whether we're going to see the European Central Bank hiking rates while the Federal Reserve has, well, let's say stopped, at least given our consensus, or even what you think it could be cutting early into H2. Do you expect the ECB to hike as the Federal Reserve pauses or cuts? This will be the third time only since summer 2008 and summer 2011. I would like to remind people what happened in later 08 and in 2012. I, I honestly think that we are staring directly into the same kind of traffic accident. <laughs> honestly, yes. Um, I mean, first of all, uh, I've spent quite some time discussing the banking outlook mm -hmm. with both economists from European institutions, uh, but also uh, bureaucrats over the past month here. And they still hold the view that this is not something that will impact the Eurozone at all because we have tighter regulation and all that stuff. And it's hard to disagree that we have tighter regulation, but should this turn into a more credit-driven scenario, then Europe is probably worse off than the US, if you ask me, uh, if you look at loan books uh, across many European banks. So what I'm trying to say here is that they have concluded now that the banking crisis was a US phenomenon, and therefore they have a green light to go ahead and deliver quite substantial rate hikes um, until September, probably thereabout. Probably damaging uh, the economy more than what they know right now uh, along the way. Hmm. So I think that the ECB thinks in very similar terms to the Federal Reserve, but the macro cycle in Europe lags the macro cycle in the US by about six months. So what's finally going to happen, I think, is that the European Central Bank will say, let's hike to 3.5%, which we think is way above neutral, tight enough, and core inflation in the Eurozone might actually have peaked, right? Like it had peaked in the US about four or five months ago. It's now the time of, of Europe. And then Europe might be saying, but only later in September, once they have reached three and a half percent or 3.75, okay, job done. So same thing as the Fed will be saying in May, according to our consensus. The ECB will be saying that four or five months later. Now, the interesting thing is that if we are right on this, the macro cycle at the global level would already be looking pretty damn bad between yeah. May and September. And nevertheless, the ECB will be like, yeah, but you know, in Europe, I still have to go because we are immune from any crisis here and the economy is strong and inflation is still running high. So I'm afraid we are going to see another triche moment, Andreas. I'm afraid so. Yeah. I noticed that uh, Eric Sorensen, the former um, Chief economist of Goldman Sachs, and now with Unicredit, um, said that 
no more hikes, please. <laughs> and he's still with Unicredit. I, I, I guess that is a signal that at least Unicredit dislikes <laughs> a few more hikes into the summer. Um, is that something to worry about? Well, uh, at least it could be a pretty decent hint that um, the signs seen from one of the larger players in the Southern European um, economies are not too promising if they hike interest rates to a further extent. Um, at least I took notice of that message. Well, well. So, let's talk about something actionable. Yes. Come on, let's do that, Andres. We have we have been bashed on our hands for not doing it for a couple of weeks. Last week we have founding a consensus in Poland, which has gone to the moon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, just kidding, but... So if you look at markets today, where do you want on a relative, let's say on a month basis, until mid-May, where would you want to consider an allocation long short, or at least an idea? You go first. Well, from a geographical perspective, I actually think it makes a ton of sense to be long the US stock market on an index level, given that we will have a window where it seems like nothing is broken. Um, that's the simple explanation. Uh, and I don't think two-year bond yields will move a lot in such scenarios. Also from an interest rate perspective, it will be allowed to rally uh, since the Fed will not try and talk this rally down um, at the current juncture. So I think from an index level, US equities look relatively interesting in this environment, even with what we've seen in the past couple of weeks. So that's question number one. Question number two is, how does this feed into other asset classes? And I I honestly think that um, it is something that, would be, that will be cheered on by, by high beta uh, equity bets. Uh, so I've been very vocal on the Hungarian friend as a tremendous carry case. But in general, if you look for carry cases in, in FX space, you will likely have a very decent period ahead of low volatility, um, allowing you to harvest this carry, meaning that you can also harvest carry in local EM bonds uh, in such an environment here, if you ask me. So what I'm trying to say here is that everything will look kind of benign for a uh, over the next three, four month, sorry, three, four week window. Carry is the name of the game, guys. I mean, I know it sounds boring, but it is what it is. So lower volatility, mechanical rallies, rallies, low grind actually is the name of the game, not a harsh rally on the way up. And when nothing happens, you want to get paid to be in assets that can squeeze risk premia away. So we have discussed about some emerging markets in the past. Um, the other way is maybe currencies that are prone to cyclical growth. So when you reprice away chances of an immediate recession, then normally you get a rally in stuff like the sterling, the euro, which we are seeing happening. And also this policy differentials that might actually unfold over the next three to four months tend to get priced through the currency as well. So a more aggressive ECB relative to a less aggressive Fed obviously benefits euro against the dollar. What I'm looking at, I don't have anything particular this week. I mean, you just ride the trend and an emerging markets or a European stock market um, is doing well. So you just keep riding it. 
what I am looking at here is uh, bonds again. So I haven't loaded up, but obviously if nothing happens, if there is no default, if there is no immediate recession, if there is no credit crisis, if the stock market keeps rallying, you might have bond yields going up again. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Let, let, let me rephrase. I hope bond yields go up again so that you get closer to the second leg of uh, a bear market and a proper recessionary cycle, having the chance to increase your bond allocation in your portfolio at more palatable levels. Uh, this is the game plan and nothing uh, to do this week, as my mentor used to say, time to go long, time to go short, time to go fishing. So I'm just keeping my... Uh, positions in the market, the carry positions, and fishing for um, increasing the bond allocation in the book. Yeah. Uh, one of my best friends in the portfolio manager space uh, he used to say during those years of uh, extremely depressed volatility that he decided on an asset allocation in January and then he played golf until he decided not to play golf anymore <laughs> because it actually worked out pretty well, right? There were, there, yeah. there were basically no reasons to be in front of the screen all the day. So That's true, that's true. Yeah. All right, Andres, um, where can people find more of your work? People can go to stenoresearch.com. Um, if you uh, want to read instead of go fishing, you can do that and find um, actionable stuff. We we post transparent portfolio um, allocation uh, and ideas on a running basis. And I can guarantee you that we will alarm you every time there is um, a new soft indicator out with hints of when to actually adjust accordingly uh, ahead of a credit event. If you want to join a few thousands happy investors looking for macro insights and portfolio allocations, you can do that at the Macro Compass. If you want to know more, you can also send me an email, info at themacrocompass.com. And the links to our uh, research pages will be in the description below the podcast and on YouTube. Said that, Andreas, have a nice weekend and I'll talk to you again next week. One thing to add, you yeah. haven't mocked me for wearing a shirt for the <laughs> first time ever in this podcast, seriously. That was because I know that you uh, decided to wear the shirt three minutes before we went on air. <laughs> and I am wearing sweatpants below the shirts, of course. Yeah. So, um, said that, let's talk to our friends next week, Andreas, shall we? Yeah. See you guys.